0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. According to my guest today and many others who follow events in South Sudan, there are some frightening warning signs that a genocide may erupt in that country. South Sudan has been at war with itself for the better part of three years, ever since a political dispute between President Salva Kiir and his Vice President Riek Machar turned into an armed conflict between those two men and their respective forces. The conflict took on ugly sectarian dimensions. These men hail from different ethnic groups, and peace has so far been elusive. In recent weeks, however, it seems that the government of Salva Kiir is readying itself to commit ethnic-based mass atrocities for reasons that my guest Cameron Hudson explains. Cameron is the director of the simon Scott Center for the Prevention of Genocide at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. He's also a former CIA officer with extensive background in the region, and he tells me that the conditions for genocide in South Sudan are ripe. We discuss the background of this conflict and also the proximate reasons that things are about to get worse. And yes, it does have in part to do with the election here in the United States. If you want to go deeper into this issue, I've had a few episodes now on South Sudan and also interviews with people who have helped shape South Sudan policy over the decade. So do check those out. You can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and, and search for those. Also, the United States Institute for Peace on Thursday, December 8th is hosting uh, an event uh, on this situation, the unfolding in South Sudan. And I have to imagine that it will be webcast and also uh, a video of the event will be available if you want to go deeper. They tend to capture most of their uh, events on video. And as always, you can get in touch with me via com to suggest an interviewee or a topic I should cover or anything else that's on your mind. Let me know. I, I do love hearing from you. I do love hearing what's on your mind, what kind of questions you have uh, about the world that I may help you answer in a future episode. So please do feel free to get in touch with me. I, I do love hearing from you. I've said this before, but I, I do this for you. There are many several thousand of you now who listen to this podcast episode every week. And I, I just have profound thanks for you. And, and it is my duty to help you understand the world a little bit better. And now here is Cameron Hudson of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: South Sudan has has sort of presented with these... Structural indicators making it very prone to this kind of mass violence or even genocidal violence. Right? It's it's experienced that kind of violence in the past. Um, ethnic divisions and the saliency of ethnic politics have been very strong in the country. Obviously, have boiled over in the recent past. You see very weak government institutions. You see a failing economy. You see uh, and now uh, sort of those are the sort of structural reasons. But I think in the short term, you're seeing you know a rise in um, Hate speech and dehumanizing speech uh, through official state organs. You're seeing clearly the collection, uh, importation of weapons and ammunition. I'm I'm seeing in my own analysis uh, uh, a real effort on the part of the government to rid the country of international observers and aid workers mm-hmm. and those who might bear witness to the crimes uh, that have been and could could again be committed.
0: So you're seeing them like harass aid workers out of the country or deny visas, that sort of thing.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think we've seen uh, stepped up attempts in the last year, um, notably, you know, firing on a, a U.S. diplomatic convoy, um, which the South Sudanese knew was a U.S. diplomatic convoy. We've seen them fire at uh, British diplomats. We've seen um, harassment um, and worse of international aid workers. We've seen them deny visas, both official visas to UN and other diplomatic staff, but also. Um, to other outside observers. We've seen a crackdown on free press in the country. You know, we've seen just a host of things Um, And of course, the attacks on internationals are causing people to to pull out of the country. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing we're seeing uh, fewer people, staff, our embassies, staff, uh, international institutions uh, that are based in the country. um, And that could could uh, be observers uh, and hopefully a break on on what's happening. Yeah, I remember they they, like
0: PNG the uh, UN's humanitarian coordinator, Toby Lanzer, not too long ago. Right
1: exactly exactly mm-hmm. and and we 've seen you know an increasingly difficult relationship with with the u n as the u n has has uh, spoken up, and you know sadly i 've said before I, I feel like Car- uh, Juba has taken a playbook out of uh, a page out of the cartoon playbook and how they 're treating uh unmiss and um, they've actually, in fact, I think, been more brazen than Khartoum ever was uh, during the Darfur uh, attempt to to, uh, to deploy the UNAMID mission. We mm-hmm. saw, um, you know, Khartoum was sort of death by a thousand cuts, where you didn't get the visa, you didn't get the customs duty, you know, you weren't able to import your equipment. Um, it was this sort of slow bureaucratic role in many ways that 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 prevented, um, you know, the mission from getting fully stood up in in a timely fashion. Here. You're seeing you're seeing Juba um, launch mortar shells on UN compounds that are protecting uh, South Sudanese civilians. I mean, so you're seeing, I think, an increasingly brazen response by the government in Juba, uh, attacking uh, both in words, bureaucratically, and now militarily, even uh, the UN mission, which is really the only symbol of the international community left in uh, inside the country.
0: And, and I should say, uh, for clarity's sake, that you, that your reference to Khartoum, uh, you're referring to the government of Sudan's um, bureaucratic obstacles that they put in place to hinder the deployment of both humanitarian aid and also the deployment of a peacekeeping mission to Darfur like 10 years ago. Um, So so that's then, and you're sort of making the comparison, that's what Juba, which is the capital of South Sudan, is is doing today to the UN and the international community. Um, I wanted to ask... Um, It seems that sort of the locus of most concerns, I know the concerns of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum and the the U.S. government and other NGOs are focused right now on troubling signs they're seeing coming out of a place called Equatorial State in South Sudan. Can you explain what's going on there and why you are so concerned, why the government is so concerned?
1: Sure. So, I mean, I think we've seen a positioning of uh, troops uh, in uh, those areas now, we've seen. You know, this is uh, an area that had escaped most of the the violence that we saw when it broke out in 2013 uh, and continued into 2014. Um, this this area of the country, um, largely Dinka area, was um, was. Uh, Removed from much of that violence and we're seeing now a positioning of, of troops, uh, and attacks on cities that had not previously, uh, come under assault. Uh, and now increasingly we're seeing, um, and hearing reports of really widespread and systematic, uh, ethnic cleansing going on in those, uh, in those areas. Um, you know, again, coupled with the fact that it's the end of the the raining season in that part of the country, um there's going to be increased mobility and an increased ability to to carry out more widespread and systematic attacks
0: and And can you describe to the best of of your ability what what you know about the ethnic dimensions of these attacks in in equatorial state?
1: so the the attacks that have been going on, I think, you know, I think it's it's worth sort of just restating that for the past three years, the entire country has has been um, broken has broken down uh, largely along ethnic lines. And um, you know, when that happens, it's it's very difficult to disentangle the uh, the politics of the country from from the ethnicity. And 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 this fighting has. Gone, broken down along uh, similar political and ethnic ethnic lines. The the, the bulk of the fighting uh, that occurred the last three years um, was uh, located in areas largely north of of Juba, uh, along the Nile. In many cases, bore in Jonglei State, Malakal, and Upper Upper Nile State. Um, you know, certain areas of uh, of Unity State, up towards the the border with uh, with with Sudan. Those were largely targeting uh, new air and shaluk communities, minority ethnic communities in the country. Um, uh, The former vice president, Riak Mashar, representing uh, sort of new air interests uh, in the country. Um, So that's been uh, where I think the bulk of the fighting has been. Uh, In the past six months or so, we've seen uh, outbreaks of violence. Um, in Juba, uh, the capital of the country, but also um, in uh, you know the largest city in the Equatorius, um, and it has been uh, targeting uh, more Dinka, uh, which is uh, the main uh, tribal group in the country, and that represented by President Salva Kiir.
0: Um, Okay, so so let's take a a step back and talk about the sort of history of South Sudan, the history of this conflict, um, which you said is is about three years old now, and stems from the fact that um, the the, the two men that you mentioned, Salva Kiir, the president, and his one-time vice president, Riyak Machar, were were one-time allies, but then there was a political falling out, and that political disagreement turned violent, actually, rather quickly and spread instability and conflict throughout the country and you know that lasted for what about about two and a half three years um and now we're we're at this point uh where what where where machar is where it seems I should say that we're further from a, a peaceful resolution to this conflict than it seems we ever have been uh
1: yeah i would certainly agree with that i mean i think that um I think that, you know, first of all, it goes the the the, the fighting between these two, both uh, fr- from a political standpoint and, and militarily, goes back, you know, twenty years, right? It goes back to the the North South Civil War and a moment in time when uh, Riyad Mashar, uh began siding with the government of Khartoum against the Sudan People's Liberation Army, which which Kier was was commanding at the time under John Garang. Um, and so, uh, you know, so there was a, a huge amount of animosity uh, between them when Riak decided to take uh, support from from the government of Khartoum, and he's never really um, been viewed in in um, since then as a a full player and full participant in in, in South Sudan's uh, political process. He Obviously, represents a very large uh, portion of the population. Still a minority population, but a large portion. And so he was he was brought in there under John Garang. There was a uh, amends were made, and the party was unified for the sake of achieving the comprehensive peace agreement, which ultimately ended the North South civil war. But I think we in the West, I think, uh, really dramatically underestimated the degree to which uh, the political divisions between both Kier and. Mishar, but more broadly between Dinka and Nuer had been healed through the process of making peace with the North and through the process of independence. And so it was was only two years after independence uh, that the ethnic division and the political Youd spilled out onto the to the battlefield so that's so we're really talking about twenty plus years of history both between uh, these individuals and even longer when you think about uh, the 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 tensions that have existed uh, between these tribes within this uh, within this regional context so there's a lot of history that that is uh, brought into these uh, into these fights right now um, so but I do think that we are probably uh, at a point now where um, a more robust and aggressive international vol- involvement is going to be required to help keep the peace. Well, well,
0: I wanted to ask you about that. So why is it that the international community, including the the United States, which had so much equity in giving birth to the country of, of South Sudan? I know probably you personally were were, were deeply involved in this process, uh, for, for years as well. Why is it that the United States and international community just were, were unable or, or, or are seemingly unable to influence events on the ground in, in a, a sort of useful way?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's sort of the million dollar question, right? I mean, I think I, it's, it's not just one thing. I think, um, You know, first and foremost, the responsibility has to be with the parties on the ground. And I think that what we have seen from Keir and Mashar and those around them is that they're rejecting a lot of the outside counsel that is available to them. And I'm not just talking about from the U.S. or the U.K. or or Norway, the the traditional what they call Troika countries that had had really, you know, supported and sponsored South Sudan's independence. But they're not taking it from African heads of state either. not taking it from Ethiopia or Kenya uh, or other nations uh, in EGAD, the kind of the regional grouping uh, that South Sudan is in, or from the AU, right? So they've really cut themselves off from outside influence, outside mediation, uh, and they're not listening to to, to former friends and allies. Yeah, I, I think saw that
0: that's... that they both turned down an invitation to South Africa from Jacob Zuma.
1: Right. So I think, I think that's, you know, certainly one element is that, uh, they're rejecting good counsel and, um, and, and not, uh, opening themselves to, to outside influence, uh, first and foremost. But I think also the, you know, the relationship that, uh, the U.S. has had with, uh, South Sudan has, has really degraded since independence and, um, You know they, you know, as the relationship I think rightfully should have matured, where the U.S. would have been uh, more critical of uh, certain decisions, uh, um, undemocratic decisions, or bad financial decisions that the South Sudanese were making, as those uh, as those decisions became more obvious, and as we began to have a more frank. Uh, and grown up conversation with them uh the relationship you know sort of soured uh they weren't ready to kind of take on that uh that that criticism from outside actors and again i think uh there's been a level of di- distrust that which has which has really eroded the the relationship with the us as they have uh, become independent so there's a couple of reasons why i think um you know they're not uh they're not taking it, Taking advice and counsel, but um, the other part of this, which I think is uh, you know even more desperate, frankly, is that I think both sides in this fight believe that they face an existential threat to uh, their rule and uh, the and and the livelihoods of their people, and I think when political leaders find themselves In an existential threat or what they perceive to be an existential threat, then they are willing to take really unparalleled positions uh, and um, dramatic positions that don't allow them to be, uh, you know, sort of. Walked back very easily, even by the closest of allies and I think that both Kiir and Mashar, through actions and words, have expressed that they see the other side as an existential threat to their to their rule and to their well-being inside of South Sudan today
0: so uh, it sounds you know as if the the conditions are are ripe or as ripe as ever. For just, you know, for genocide, frankly, for, for you know, mass atrocity events, including genocide. I mean, what do, do you see that as one potential even likely outcome at this point?
1: Well, I mean, I think from from our perspective and my perspective as someone who works on genocide prevention, I think we have to plan for that outcome, right? Because if we don't plan for it, we won't be prepared uh, if we start to see it uh, unfold in front of us. And so I think we have to plan for that. I think we have to make assumptions that it is the design of the government of South Sudan under Kiir to, to carry it out. Um, I think there are a couple of things that um, – that really impact my thinking. We've talked a little bit about sort of the long-term structural indicators. We've talked about uh, the things that we've seen in the short term: the stockpiling of weapons, um, the use of hate speech, the organization of the military, um, the deployment of troops uh, to key to key areas. So all of those things suggest an imminent uh, an imminent fight and the capacity to do it. I think the thing that worries me right now is, and, and the reason why uh, my institution chose to speak up. Uh, when it did is that we're at a moment in time where we're about to have a wholesale reshuffling of the U.S. government, a wholesale reshuffling of the United Nations system. We've lost the uh, force commander for the U.N. peacekeeping mission in South Sudan. We've lost the special representative of the secretary general. So those posts are, are now vacant. Um, And it's the holidays coming up, and most of the international uh, aid workers and diplomats who are in the country are going to be leaving for the holidays, as they always do. And so we're creating an opportunity where a real vacuum within the international community, both in world capitals, in New York and Washington, uh, but also in Juba itself, uh, are going to be created. There's going to be a huge vacuum, and I think that creates an opportunity while the international community is getting its affairs in order and trying to appoint people to new positions uh, and those positions being filled and people coming in and learning their mandate, that there's going to be a huge opportunity during this dry season now um, for those people in power and not in power um, to carry out uh, a campaign uh, that could be genocidal. So I think we're, we're facing a bit of a perfect storm here, sadly. And so what are you doing to prepare Well, I think what we're trying to do is, uh, first of all, raise the alarm and get people to make sure that uh, there are contingency plans, that there are people that are minding uh, the store in the absence of uh, full-time people or during this transition period. So really making sure that the political engagement uh, at a high level uh, stays there, Uh, obviously leaning to the extent that we can and others can um, to do some of the things that are already laid out. Uh, So for example, deploying a uh, a rapid reaction force of 4,000 additional African troops, uh, trying to get uh, the Kenyan troops replaced, um, you know, Trying to get African heads of state and others in the region uh, to reengage in this process. I think we've we've seen coming out of uh, coming out of Addis recently, um, you know, not a unified message on the part of the Africans. The fact that the Kenyans uh, have pulled their troops out of the peacekeeping operation. So the, the one of the biggest and most important neighbors to South Sudan, um, basically packing up and, and, and leaving, I think all sends a very bad signal. I think the other thing that we can do and should be doing, um, is sending very powerful signals from the security council and i think that uh, sadly the yeah. debate that's gone on right now around the arms embargo and the us inability to uh, to put together a coalition to to pass that arms embargo sends again another signal yeah. to the south sudanese that both it's okay to carry out these crimes that you're not going to be punished that we're going to look the other way that this isn't a priority and that the international community is not speaking with one voice and it's and it's if worth it that message yeah. It's, you know, it could be a green light for additional violence.
0: And and it's worth pointing out a couple of things. One, that uh, the Security Council just last week failed to pass an arms embargo resolution that the United States supported, though, to, you know, to, to be fair, the United States did not support an arms embargo for many years and only recently came around to this notion that an arms embargo would be a good idea. But it seems to be too late because it failed to gain the support of some key members of the Security Council, including Russia. Um, uh, though on your point w- uh, uh, about this sort of the transition in the United States government and, and at the UN between Ban Ki-moon and Antonio Guterres, um, I think, I think is, is, and is an important point perhaps to emphasize, um, is that, It's sort of rare, but the like top reaches of of the White House and of the US government have are sort of uniquely keyed in and clued into the situation in South Sudan. You have the national security advisor, uh Susan Rice has been, you know, an early champion for years, even out of government of the of South Sudan. Um, Gail Smith, the head of USAID many years, again, a long time sort of observer and, and, and champion of South Sudan and Samantha Power has, has been keyed in, included in on this issue for many years. And so all of these really high ranking us government officials, uh, are about to leave office and, you know, into the void steps, you know, who knows what,
1: Right right and i and I, I think it's again it's a, it's a it's a very dangerous time. I know that there's been a lot of you know very high level attention pl- paid by the u s government on uh actors in South Sudan, but also on, um, you know, a very robust diplomatic effort uh, to try to, you know, rally the the Africans and rally other um, European actors in support of uh, in support of South Sudan. And so um, I do fear uh, a diplomatic vacuum, a leadership vacuum, a policy vacuum uh, that could emerge. And listen, the South Sudanese, they're very keen observers of you know our politics mm-hmm. um, they they have uh, you know they have been very active in Washington for many years, lobbying for their interests and uh, been very successful at it. And so I think that uh, they will be observing uh, the messages that come out of Washington and New York, and, and they already are. And and I, and I fear that uh, if they want to take a message that uh, that America is not paying attention or that the international community is at best ambivalent towards the violence that's, uh, that has already gone on there and could still go on, then I think that's a very dangerous message that we would be inadvertently sending them.
0: Um, so it is probably the case that if things do spiral out of control in this perfect storm, as you described, the world will probably be looking to the United Nations, to the UN peacekeepers in the country to do what they can to try to put a a lid on the violence. And so far, there's something, what, about 17-ish thousand Peacekeepers in the country, and recently, a few months ago, the Security Council authorized uh, 4,000 extra so-called rapid reaction troops to to be deployed there as well. But those troops have not been mustered yet, or have not deployed yet. And so it, it seems that while the United International Community may look to to UN peacekeepers to do what they can to keep a lid on this violence, they themselves may be overwhelmed by the that the task that they that they've sort of would be given and would be expected to uphold.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's, again, it's deeply troubling. I, I would have said, you know, two years ago, I would have, I would have said, and I did say that the high water mark of UN peacekeeping was when a, when violence originally broke out in, in the country in 2013 and 2014, that when South Sudanese civilians sought refuge at UN compounds, they were taken in. And so now we have uh, peacekeeping compounds that previously only housed peacekeepers are now protection of civilian sites that are housing upwards of 200,000 South Sudanese civilians who fled to the UN looking for safety. Um, And that's really the first time that we've seen the UN uh, in an extreme situation with very few options uh, available to it open its doors and decide to protect civilians. I can tell you that when I was in Darfur 10 years ago um, and we saw similar uh, attacks, uh, the UN didn't open its gates. And there were a number of instances in Darfur where uh, makeshift encampments had been built on literally people hanging their clothes to dry on the concertina wire of UN compounds in Darfur, being slaughtered by uh, Arab forces in Darfur in plain sight of the UN compound. And so, um, you know, two years ago when when they took the decision to allow literally hundreds of thousands of civilians in I thought it was a real act of courageousness on the part of the UN and we, we've seen uh, over the course of the past two years that that situation has 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 essentially become unsustainable for the UN it's not it was never set up those camps were never set up to house that many civilians uh, to care for that many people um, and they're having an extremely difficult time it, it is now viewed as a legitimate target by forces inside South So in the past year, we've seen um, targeted attacks on UN compounds, we've seen uh, the firing of mortars inside those those compounds, targeting civilians. And so we've seen a real erosion of the respect that the government and uh, aligned forces in South Sudan has for the UN presence. They're feeling under extreme threat. We've we've seen uh, critical reports about uh, about how the UN has responded in other isolated attacks that have come on those compounds, where they haven't returned fire, where they've kind of hunkered down and not protected civilians. So it's really been a very mixed mixed record. I think they, they took some very courageous steps uh, early on when the violence started, but it's been completely unsustainable, and the international community has not stepped up to try to remedy the situation for the UN. And so now I think they find themselves in an incredibly vulnerable situation. And as you rightly point out, they're the only... They're the only remaining symbol of the international community still left in the country. They will be looked to to keep forces apart to respond when there are massive outbreaks of violence. And God forbid, if there's genocide, to try to arrest it. And they are simply not prepared to do that. Yeah, I mean,
0: they're, they're spending most of their resources guarding civilians in, camp, at, in their encampments. And so it seems rather difficult, uh, if not impossible, to go out and sort of proactively prevent genocide in that case.
1: Absolutely, and I think you know. I think you're going to see uh, increasing um, concern from from the uh, troop contributing countries who could, like the Kenyans, pull their forces out or significantly. Um, uh, scale back their their commitments to this mission and other missions so i think i think you know this is uh, a potential bellwether for uh certainly the future of peacekeeping in, in this part of the world and i think uh the u.n has a huge test and i have not heard uh, beyond this four thousand um troop plus up that has been authorized uh which the south Sudanese are not you know, allowing in at this point, um, how they're going to, how they're going to, uh, strengthen their position in the country, uh, absent some, some outside support.
0: Uh, well, Cameron, thank you so much for your time. I mean, I, this is obviously like a really urgent and dire situation and, uh, you know, just the, the, the forces aligning right now to encourage the situation to deteriorate ever, ever more rapidly is just kind of distressing to stay the least.
1: Yeah, it is and I'm I'm grateful for you for for talking about this and you know hope we can get others talking about it as well.
0: All right. Thank you all for listening. And thank you especially to the Global Dispatches Premium Club members. Those of you who have made a contribution to the podcast via our Patreon page. And there's a link to that up on globaldispatchespodcast.com. But thank you. Thank you for, for helping to maintain and sustain this podcast. And you get rewards for doing so. You get a free complimentary subscription to my Dawn's Digest global news clip service. This is a a hand-picked news curation service I help run that delivers news to your desktop or laptop every single weekday morning. It's news from around the world that I think you would most be interested in, in reading. And it's used by many government agencies as well. That's just one of the many rewards, but there are others, so go to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash Global Dispatches Podcast. And you will see the other rewards that are available to you. All right. See you next time. Bye.